Many of you have just been a very crucial part of my own life. You've poured into mine, um, teaching me from when I was a rebellious five-year-old, running around causing trouble, even bearing with me through my high school years when I was just pugnacious. Um, it's, it's just such a joy just to be home, to, to be with you, um, and uh, just to be able to, to preach God's word to you. I'm very thankful for Pastor Henry for giving me the opportunity just to be able to come home and uh, to share in the work of the ministry here at SFBC uh, by, by having the opportunity to preach at, from this pulpit. Um, Pastor Henry, Pastor Alton, Justin, these men have done so much uh, in pouring into my life and even just molding me into the man that I am today. Um, and uh, there's just such godly men. It's, it's such an honor to be here, to be with you. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm not thankful just for them, but also for all of you. I know that I have your prayer support and I have some of your financial support. And for that, I am so, so grateful and it's also just really encouraging to hear some of you, uh, as you saw me this weekend, come up and say, hey, I heard you preaching. I'll be praying for you. It's just been such such joy. If I was a wise man, I would have took that said thank you and then left to go back to L.A. But, you know, I'm not. So, <laughs> uh, But, yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your support. And I, I truly love you all. Um, so I, I pray that as we, as, we, as we go into our study today, um, that uh, our God would be glorified. Now, be- before before we read our text, I just wanted to give you a little side note. Um, whenever the, lo- the word LORD in all caps appears in your Bible, I just want to let you know that I'll be making a conscious effort to read in the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. And I'm not doing this to show off my seminary knowledge or the fact that I know some Hebrew, but I'm doing this to sound, I'm doing this because I want to place the same emphasis that David is placing in this song. Every time that he says the name Yahweh, he's talking about God's personal name, God's covenant relationship name. And so it's very, very personal. It's not just him saying Lord as in someone that I respect, but this is my God. And so that's, that's, that's the emphasis that I want to put in there today. So if, yeah, don't, don't be distracted. But think about that though. All right. So uh, if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. The Psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as if with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way 
you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for how you have given us forgiveness of sin. We pray, Lord, that as we as we study your word together, that, Lord, you would glorify yourself. Make your name great. Make your name known. Father, glorify yourself as we study. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. At some point in our lives, whether intentionally or not, we eventually will fail others. We will wrong them. We will offend them and even hurt them. After all, we are humans, we're not perfect, and we make mistakes. As a result, we all need forgiveness. Now, we understand what forgiveness is. We've been in church long enough. It's not that hard to understand, but at the same time, when we think about forgiveness, it's often flawed. It's often incomplete. How many times have we heard, or even said some of the following things. Will you forgive me? Eh, maybe. Or how about, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. Or what about, I'll forgive you, but I am still mad at you for what you've done. Or, I forgive you, but I can't trust you anymore. Or even worse, I just can't forgive you right now. While we have probably all at least said one of these things at some point in our lives, perhaps even this very morning, don't these responses sound childish? It's like a petulant child. And even if you don't think it's, it's childish, wouldn't you at least agree that our common concept of forgiveness has strayed far away from the Bible's description of forgiveness? Can you imagine if God's forgiveness was like our forgiveness, there would be absolutely no hope of ever being forgiven. The threat that we would not receive forgiveness would always be present. Even if we were forgiven at one point, that forgiveness might not even be true forgiveness if our wrongs are brought up against us again and again and again. For this reason, we must We must recover a biblical understanding of forgiveness, why we need it, and why it is such a blessing to be forgiven. David, the great king of Israel, is the author of Psalm 32, and there is no one more qualified to teach us about forgiveness than him. We tend to think of our favorite Bible characters, heroes, as sinless, without flaw, without flaws, or even perfect examples of Christian faith. But a closer examination of our heroes as they are presented in Scripture reveals the all-too-human condition of our heroes. They're sinners, just like us. Though God describes David as a man after his own heart, 
and makes him the king through whom the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, comes from, David was still a great sinner. But in spite of David's sin, Yahweh completely forgave David when he confessed and repented of his sin. Psalm 32 is David's response to receiving Yahweh's forgiveness after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed in order to cover up his guilt. In our passage this morning, we will observe five elements within David's psalm that prompt us to confess our sins and to rejoice in forgiveness. The first element that we observe, which prompts us to rejoice in Yahweh's forgiveness of sins, is David's proclamation of blessing. It's David's proclamation of blessing. Verses 1 to 2. How blessed is he whose sins or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. Boldly proclaims that those who experience forgiveness are blessed or happy. Steve Lawson suggests that David's pronouncement may also be translated as how abundantly, richly blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Notice that the ones who are declared blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered, and whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity. He uses three similar terms to describe sin here. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. The idea of the word transgression is one of rebellion. It emphasizes the rebellion that man has against God when, they con- when he consciously chooses to disobey what God's word has revealed is right. Sin has the idea of missing the mark or going off the path of righteousness. You have often heard it illustrated in terms of archery, where you have an archer who's aiming his arrow at the target. He shoots, but he falls short in his attempt to hit it. This illustration breaks down, of course, because in God's eyes, if you've missed the mark of his righteous standard, even by a hair, you have failed. Even by a hair, you have failed. It's all or nothing. Iniquity, it carries the idea of something evil, perverted, criminal, or disrespectful. It speaks of the guilt that we have, that we carry when we choose to sin against God. These three, these three terms, transgression, sin, and iniquity, were not meant by David to establish different categories of sin that people commit. Rather, David is showing a comprehensive view of sin to people. He's showing the complete range of sin. The little sins which we commit, such as frustration with our loved ones, anxiety over life, and anger towards others who wrong us. These are all just as equally serious to God as some of those quote-unquote big sins like murder and adultery. David, he communicates that all of these sins can be forgiven by Yahweh. All of them. Not just the big ones, even the little ones. 
He is willing to forgive all sin. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how much you've done it or even how much it hurts someone. Yahweh is willing to forgive you of all your sin once and for all. In a similar manner, David, he demonstrates the completeness of of the forgiveness available for all who confess their sin by describing Yahweh's forgiveness with three similar terms. Forgiveness literally means lifted off the burden that the guilt of sin has upon a person, that presses down upon a person, is lifted off of them by Yahweh. Yahweh himself, he removes the guilt of sin off of us. Covered points to how Yahweh refuses to consider our sin against us after he has forgiven us. This is the kind of forgiveness that we want to have in our relationships. When we're asking for forgiveness from someone, we don't want to hear the following. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear, well, I don't know if I can forgive you. Remember that one time? You know, you just don't want to hear that, right? That's not forgiveness. It's an example of forgiveness that has not covered over sin. It continues to keep one's misdeeds in mind and even uses it as a weapon for the next time offense occurs. But Yahweh, but Yahweh, Yahweh is not this way. He is not this way. He covers up the guilt of our sin when we confess our sin. Our sin is completely forgiven and is no longer held against us. Related to this idea is the fact that Yahweh does not impute iniquity to those who are forgiven. Impute is an old accounting metaphor, which means to reckon or to credit. Yahweh does not credit to the account of the sinner their wrongdoing. The record of sin has been stricken, and the sin will no longer be held to the account of the offender. Just as David's description of sin was meant to speak about sin comprehensively, so is his description of forgiveness meant to speak about forgiveness comprehensively. The emphasis that David has here is that the forgiveness of Yahweh is absolute and complete to the one who honestly and sincerely confesses sin to him. This forgiveness has led to the pardoning of any kind of wrongdoing on the account of the one who has offended Yahweh. David's proclamation of blessing shows us that the one who has been completely forgiven of sin, no matter what that sin is, is an abundantly blessed person because Yahweh has forgiven sin completely. This leads us to our second element that we will observe, and that is David's personal testimony of unconfessed sin. His testimony of unconfessed sin. How does David know about the blessedness of forgiveness? Why is he qualified to tell us of these things? Verses 3 to 4 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David is giving us his personal testimony of what happened when he tried to cover up his sin. 2 Samuel 11 is, tells, is, is the account of David's sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent cover-up. 
Now, even if you've been in church and you've heard this account before, listen to this summary of the story to see how it relates to what David says here in Psalm 32. The author of 2 Samuel tells us that during the springtime, when kings went out to war, David remained at home. Now, some of you have heard it taught that the reason why David fell into his sin with Bathsheba was because he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. And you'd, you'd be right to an extent. However, if you look at the facts in the account, if you look at the surrounding context, you'll discover something far more sinister. David is pacing on his rooftop because he can't sleep. And while he's on the roof, he looks and he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop. Now, if you have seen pictures of Jerusalem or even um, been to Jerusalem, you'll, you'll know that you can see everything that happens on a rooftop. It's on the top of a mountain, after all. It's on the top of a plateau. You can see everything on the rooftop. The view of the rooftops is as clear as the view of the rooftops here in San Francisco on Moraga and 16th, on the, on the Moraga stairs. You can see everything from up there. When you get to the top, you can see everything. And so the rooftop is not a private place. Everything is visible. This is confirmed later in 2 Samuel when David's son Absalom usurps David's throne, sends his father running for his life, and shows the people that he is in charge by setting up sheets on the roof of the palace and sleeping with some of his father's concubines. That's a clear sign in the ancient ancient Near East culture that someone has taken over forcefully. This was done in plain sight of all the people so that they would know that David is no longer king, Absalom is king. So as we can see, the rooftop is a very, very public place. But yet here, here's a woman in a conservative, ancient Israelite society bathing on a rooftop. This is odd, not only because of the moral sensitivity of the people in showing their bodies to others, but also because Israelites, they bathe closer to the ground floor of their houses. There's no running water in Israel. In ancient Israel, there's water running water now. But in ancient Israel, there is no running water. So if you needed water, you had to go to the well with your buckets, and you had to get the wa- draw the water, lug it home, and then if you were going to take a bath, you would have to put it in that. You would have to just empty it there. But why would you? Why would you take? Why would you take a bucket of water, lug it all the way up to the roof to take a bath in plain sight of everybody? You wouldn't do that today. Why would they do it then? It's not there. So this demonstrates that David and Bathsheba most likely have done this before. They've most likely done this before. He's pacing on his rooftop and he can't sleep because he knows what's outside. He knows what's waiting for him and that's why he can't sleep. It says in the text next that David inquires from his servant. He says, who's that woman? And his servant replies, isn't that Bathsheba? In a sense, that servant's kind of saying, what do you mean, who's that woman? You know who that woman is. Isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of your mighty men, one of your best friends? And furthermore, it's it's like, don't you know that that is the granddaughter of your most trusted counselor, Ahithophel? Don't you know that? And David ignores it. And he sends for Bathsheba, and he sleeps with her. And after a while, 
They find out that she's pregnant. And David, he knows he's in trouble. And so he recalls Uriah from the battlefield with hopes that Uriah will sleep with his wife so that the timeline of Bathsheba's pregnancy will fit in with the time that Uriah was home. And David, he, he tries to manipulate this by getting Uriah drunk at a feast and sends him home, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife. But Uriah refuses, and he sleeps outside with the servants because he knows it is not right for him to be at home to enjoy being with his wife when his, when his fellow soldiers are on the battlefield. The author of 2 Samuel makes it very clear here. Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober. David's plan is foiled, so he sends Uriah back onto the battlefield with a letter for General Joab. And this letter contains an order to storm the fortress with Uriah at the head, and where the battle is the fiercest, and then to withdraw. Uriah, he goes back into the battlefield, and he thinks that he's been promoted as a trusted messenger of the king. And he's leading the troops in the charge against the castle, or against the fortress, and he realizes, hey, where is everybody? I'm all here by myself. But imagine, just, just imagine what he's thinking. He's thinking that he got promoted. He's thinking that he, he, got, he, that he has the king's trust and he's been, he's been entrusted with the responsibility of the, of the main battle. And everyone's running away. And he's thinking, you cowards, fight for King David and for God. This is treachery on David's behalf. It's treachery. And if you think that if David's treachery in sending a loyal soldier, one of his mighty men, no less, to his death is not enough, he attempts to make himself look good by marrying Bathsheba afterwards. He places himself in the role of a kinsman redeemer in the eyes of the people. If you don't know what a kinsman redeemer is, a kinsman redeemer in Israel is, a, is the relative of a deceased man who had no children. And the kinsman redeemer would marry the wife of the deceased so that he could raise up children on behalf of the one who did not have, have children, so that the family name would continue, so that it would not go out. And by marrying Bathsheba, David positions himself so that the people will think, wow, wow, look at how righteous and how loving our king is. One of his best friends dies in battle, and he marries his friend's wife so that she will have a child who can carry on the family name. David's actions are so sinister. And after his child with Bathsheba is born, David is suddenly confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin. David has hidden his sin for at least nine months. He has stubbornly held on to his sin all this time. When Nathan shows David his guilt, David repents with a broken heart to the Lord. Now, this doesn't erase the consequences of David's sin, because David's sin gives a reason for people to, to say disparaging things about God. But Nathan tells David that Yahweh has taken away his sin, and he will not die for them. David knows what it's like to hide his sin. He knows what it's like to be eaten alive by the guilt of sin, fearing that someone might find out what he has done. 
And he describes this guilt as his body wasting away because of his groaning day and night. Because Yahweh's hand was against him, punishing him with physical discipline that sapped away David's strength as if he was in the fever heat of summer. It was as if David was being bombarded with the fierce desert sun, which drained all of his energy. David's testimony of his unconfessed sin shows us that the consequences of stubbornly refusing to confess sin and repent of your sins, Yahweh will surely respond to unconfessed sin. He will surely respond to unconfessed sin in the life of his saints with discipline to reveal their need to repent. But if you confess your sins, how blessed are you because your sins are forgiven. Now, some of you may not necessarily be disciplined by God in the same way, because David is unique, since God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish David's throne forever. He promised that through David, the Messiah would come. So David's relationship with God is much different than ours. Now, I don't know if the reason for suffering or hardship in your life is a result of divine discipline. I can't tell you that. I'm not God. God could be merely refining you so that you can grow in your faith in Him. But what we can do when we suffer is examine our lives and see if there's any unconfessed sin that is there. If we find unconfessed sin in our lives, we need to repent of our sins immediately. Now, This might not take away the consequences of sin because there are always consequences to our actions. There's always collateral damage. But it does take away the guilt of our sin. I know that we hate feeling guilty. Nobody likes to have their conscience burdened with guilt. Nobody wants to feel that physical guilt in their body. But can I suggest something to you? Perhaps the reason why you feel like you're guilty It's because you are. Now, I admit that we aren't always responsible. And we do need to sort out whether we are responsible with the Bible as our guide. Okay, the Bible. Not some psychiatrist, the Bible. But more often than not, the reason why you feel guilty over something that you've done is because you are guilty. You can't place the blame on your environment. You can't blame it on others. You always have a choice in your responses to life. Will you do what honors God or will you do what pleases you? If you feel guilty, turn to God and do not ignore him because that guilt could be Yahweh communicating to you through the Holy Spirit that you need to confess your sin before him. Do not hide your sin any longer, but experience the joy of being forgiven. We have seen David's proclamation of blessing and his testimony of unconfessed sin. And this leads us to our third element, and that is David's testimony of confessing sin. David's testimony of confessing sin. David continues to write in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Once David was confronted by Nathan and realized all that he had done and the need to confess his sin to Yahweh, he did so immediately. There was no hesitation. There was no delay. Notice that before, David was trying to hide his sin, but he was unsuccessful. He tried to cover it up. But here, David acknowledges his sin to Yahweh. He agrees with Yahweh's charge against him that he has sinned grievously. He takes responsibility for his sin, and he no longer hides his iniquity. David was desperately trying to hide his sin from from people and from Yahweh. But what we see here is that when David stopped, when David stopped trying to cover up his sin, Yahweh stepped in. And Yahweh completely and immediately covered up David's sin. When David says that he will confess his transgressions to the Lord, the word for confess communicates this idea of speaking openly. David did not just confess his sin to Yahweh, but he did so within the hearing of those who were gathered to worship. Gerald Wilson explains that this is helpful and instructive to believers to encourage them not only to confess their sins to Yahweh, but also for each other for support. Now, this is not to say that we need to make our worship time a Roman Catholic confessional, but it is good practice to confess our sin publicly with a few close friends who can support us and encourage us to act in a manner that pleases God. We need people to remind us to fight sin. We need real accountability. We don't need someone to coddle us and say that it's okay to be in your sin. No, we need someone who will call us out on our sin and tell us that we need to repent. Why? Because, remember, the promise of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins, believers. Now, don't be mistaken. The confessing of sin also carries with it the idea of sincere repentance, a turning away from sin. You know, if you run out of money and you yell, I declare bankruptcy, that doesn't solve any of your problems. Right? You can't do that. The government won't accept it. Your creditors won't accept it. Just saying something doesn't change your condition. You have to go through the legal process in order to declare bankruptcy. Just saying the words doesn't do anything for you. In a similar way, the confession of sin to Yahweh must be coupled with repentance. We agree with Yahweh about our sin against him, and we repent We turn away from our sin and our old manner of life, and we choose the new spiritual life that is available to us through Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Believers, do not hide your sin against Yahweh. You can't. You know you can't. He already sees it. Confess your sin and experience the joy. Experience the joy of being forgiven by God. This urgency to confess sin to Yahweh is exactly what David has in mind when he thinks about Yahweh's forgiveness. And that leads us to our fourth element, and it's David's exhortation to confess sin. David's exhortation to confess sin. Verses 6 and 7 say, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Having experienced the joy 
and the blessing of receiving forgiveness of sin, David, he turns to true believers and he tells them that they must pray to Yahweh and confess their sin to him immediately so that they might too receive the joy of being forgiven. He tells them that they are to do so in a time when Yahweh can be found. He's calling them to repent before discipline occurs so that they will not have to endure it. Now, this is not to say that Yahweh disappears and ceases to be present. But sometimes divine discipline comes in the form of perceived abandonment. King Saul experienced this in 1 Samuel 28. Saul had rejected Yahweh and disobeyed the words of the prophet Samuel. And then when he got in trouble and the Philistine army came up against him, he's panicking. He's like, oh, shoot, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. He's going through every single means that he can possibly go through to try and find out what God's will is concerning the battle. How can he, how can he win? And Yahweh refused to answer. He heard it, but he refused to answer. Why? Saul was under discipline. Confess your sin to Yahweh in a time when he may be found. This is not to say that this offer is only available for those who believe in God and have already confessed their sin to him. Those of you who are here today who have not yet placed your faith in Christ, this gift, this gift of forgiveness, the joy of being forgiven, is is available for you today. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found, so that you might experience the joy of his salvation and his forgiveness. Now, why, why? Why should we do this? Why should we pray for forgiveness? Because when we are forgiven, Yahweh is our shelter. He is our hiding place who will surround us with songs of deliverance. Believers who confess their sin to Yahweh are hidden from his chastisement. They are protected by Yahweh himself from discipline over sin. There's no timetable given in Scripture as to when discipline happens. It could take a while, but it can also come suddenly like a flash flood. And so that's why David says here, pray to Yahweh while he may be found. Do it quickly because you do not want to be under discipline. Now some of you may say, I thought I was forgiven completely of my sin when I confessed and repented. So why would God discipline me if I'm forgiven? Hebrews 12, 7 to 10 tells embattled believers that they are disciplined as an evidence of their adoption into God's family. Those who are disciplined by Yahweh are actually being shown the love that a father shows for his children. The author of Hebrews says that those who are not disciplined are illegitimate children. And not sons. God disciplines those who are his in order to show us his love. And he does it for our good so that we might share his holiness. There is a purpose behind 
God's discipline. And that purpose is the molding and shaping of believers into the image of Christ so that we might one day enter into the presence of our God and enjoy him forever. God may be the one who has to discipline us for our sin and our rebellion, just like fathers have to discipline their children for their rebellion. But he never crosses the line. He never takes pleasure in discipline. And he does not abuse his children. But he disciplines us so that we will know what is right. Yahweh is the ultimate example of a good father. He will be the one who disciplines us. Yes, yes, he'll discipline us. But he will also be the one. He will be the one who will hold us. He will be the one who comforts us. And he will be the one who restores us to a right relationship with him. That is the love of our God. That is the love of our God. He does not discipline us because he hates us. He disciplines us because he loves us. So far, we've seen, we've, we've seen David's proclamation of blessing for those who confess their sins. We have seen his testimony of unconfessed sin, his testimony of confessed sin, and his public exhortation to confess sin. The fifth element of David's psalm that prompts us to confess sin and rejoice in forgiveness is counseling concerning sin. It's counsel, sorry, counsel concerning sin. Verses 8 to 9. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. Yahweh himself, he's speaking through David at this point in the psalm. And he's telling believers that he himself will be the one who will instruct us. He will be the one who will teach us, and he will be the one who will counsel us in the way that we should go. Derek Kidner, he writes that the point here is Yahweh's vigilance and intimate care for believers. This realization of Yahweh's care for us calls us to have a humble and teachable spirit that is willing to confess sin immediately. Yahweh seeks to preserve those of us who are his people from falling into more sin. As a result, there is a solemn warning not to be like a horse or a mule who must be controlled by a bit or bridle. Steve Lawson explains, The Lord exhorted the people not to be like the obstinate horse or the stubborn mule that refuses to go where its riders lead. Rather, the godly should respond promptly to God on their own accord. We are not to continue on in our stubborn ways, but we are to receive the instruction of Yahweh and to follow after him as he has commanded, in all that he has commanded, not just some parts, but all of it. Believers must be vigilant concerning their sin and be quick to confess it to him. David, he closes his psalm with some final words of wisdom here in verses 9 Uh, Verses 10 to 11. He writes, Many are the sorrows, or literally pains, of the wicked, 
But he who trusts in the Lord, he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in, in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all who are upright in heart. We who have experienced the forgiveness of, of the Lord cannot help but rejoice. We cannot help but rejoice and shout for joy because we see the blessed, happy state that is now available to us as a result of Yahweh's forgiveness once we've confessed and repented of our sins. Yahweh himself will be the one who protects us from discipline. All of our sin can and will be forgiven immediately. We just need to confess our sins to him. For believers, Psalm 32 instructs us to worship God by thanking him for the forgiveness of sin. It instructs us to confess our sin to both God and others rather than to try and hide our sin. If we are faithful in confessing our sins to him, we know, we know that we will not face his discipline. Do not take your sins lightly. We must see our sins as they really are. An offense before God. Rebellion against God. It's not just a little thing. It's rebellion. Make an effort to find your sins out. Pray that God will reveal your sins to you so that you might confess them to him and experience the joy of being forgiven. Because this joy, this joy is the greatest of all blessings since it is what allows us to have a restored relationship with him. If any of you who are here today are not Christians, you have not yet confessed your sin to God and believed in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin before God today. Don't wait for tomorrow, but do it today. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. There is no other way, no other method, no other name by which you may be saved, by which you may receive forgiveness of sin and salvation, but by Jesus' name. Luke 12, 20, it tells us, it tells us of a man a farmer who had much wealth because of his crops. And he was making plans to expand. He's making plans to, grow, to build up silos, to store more wealth so that he could have more. And in the midst of his planning, God says to him in Luke, in Luke 12, 20, God says to him, you fool, you fool. Tonight, your very soul will be required of you. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Romans 1.18, he tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Confess your sin before God today while he may still be found. He is being patient with you, not desiring to judge you by sending you to hell because he desires for you to be saved. He desires for you to be saved. I beg you, I pray. Plead with you. Do not wait. But today, believe in Yahweh. Repent of your sins and believe in Yahweh. Make no mistake. Hell is not a place where you can be reunited with your loved ones. It is not a place for you to enjoy life unencumbered by rules. It is a place of darkness. It is a place 
of gnashing of teeth. It is pain everlasting as you face the eternal wrath of God for your rebellion against Him. Your sin is against an eternal God, the King of the universe. And for your cosmic treason, you deserve eternal wrath. But God, but God, God has given us His Son who died in our place so that we might be saved if we confess our sins and believe in Him. Confess your sin today while Yahweh may still be found and receive the blessing of being forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider what David wrote here in Psalm 32, we have no other response. We can't help but marvel at your amazing love. The fact that our King, our King Jesus, He died in our place while we were still enemies. When we hated you, He died for us so that we might be saved. You've taken our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are no longer on our account. We've been completely forgiven. We just can't help. We can't help but rejoice because of this truth. Father, we pray that you would help us to live rightly. You would help us to live as the new man that you've created us to be. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to stop sinning. But when we do sin, we pray that you would convict us and help us to confess our sin to you immediately. Father, for those here who are not saved, who have not yet confessed their sin and placed their faith in you, we pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts to help them see, help them see great trouble that they are in. But we pray that you would also help them see the great love that you have for them. And we pray that you might give them faith that they might receive your forgiveness and that they might believe upon your Son. Lord, we pray that as we go that you would help us to consider the words of Psalm 32. And that we would do it, not just hear it. Father, we thank you for this time. Glorify yourself in us. It's in your son's name we pray.